Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. This is a special edition of the Ask Noah Show. We are recording this at uh, 9 o'clock at night on Thursday, and uh, there are some very special things about this episode. First of all, if you are not for the faint of heart politically, this show probably isn't for you because we have to dive into some of the nitty gritty politics of Southeast Linux Fest. And as part of airing the dirty laundry, as it were, as part of getting everything out in the open so that we can have a fresh reset, a fresh place to start from, we have to talk about the forces that came to be. Now, nobody, including the people that organized Southeast Linux Fest, ever even wanted to have this conversation. We would all prefer if people could put their differences aside And we could just concentrate on sweet, sweet Linux. Unfortunately, there are powers that be that make that impossible. So uh, if that's not for you, I completely understand. And we'll be back at our regular showtime on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Central. However, if you are the kind of person that loves open source, loves community, and wants to see Southeast Linux Fest continue, then this episode is for you because you have to understand how important some of these forces are and how much sacrifice the people that bring you Southeast Linux Fest every year go through. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about people like the conference organizers. So we're going straight to the horse's mouth to get the information for you. It is my pleasure to introduce Jeremy Sands, the president or conference organizer of Southeast Linux Fest. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. Happy to have you. So tell me a little bit about the history of self. I, I mean, I guess I'll just kind of let you take the hour and, uh, and, and give us the history of self, the presence of self, and uh, where self is going. Sure. I kind of I, I have a talk to this effect, uh, oddly enough. This talk has multiple um, you know, goals that it aims to achieve. Uh, we're wanting to go through some of the history of the Southeast Linux Fest um, I have some observations, um, generally speaking, about community building, specifically as it applies to conferences, but I think those are lessons that don't necessarily stay within that realm. I think they apply more generally as well. Uh, this is also the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, from an event organizer's perspective, because uh, I know when I first started out with the event, I certainly you know, I, I knew the size of the undertaking, so I, I sought advice from, you know, people in Uclug, uh, people at OLF and scale and so on and so forth. And of course they'll, they'll readily tell you the good side, but conference organizers, I think for obvious selfish reasons, tend to not want to share the bad because you know, it could, it could hurt your reputation, but I am interested in the full picture because I want people who hear this to not be blindsided by some things that they're going to have to encounter eventually anyway, so that they're not surprises to them, whereas there were surprises to me for sure. Maybe things that you wish that somebody had told you. Exactly. That, that's a, yes, that is a much, that's a much more concise way of phrasing. Um, 
And uh, also, I want to explain some of the changes that are going to take place in the conference and how it's organized and, and some of the policies and guidelines that it will operate under. And uh, I want to sort of explain what SELF is because it's kind of different from any other event I've been to. Uh, I'm sure every event is different in its own way, but SELF feels very, very different to me than almost any other event I've been to. Okay. So, um, in the very, very beginning, uh, as, as best I recall, uh, I had wanted for some time to have uh, a, a Linux event in the southeast that I could drive to. You see all the time, um, and I, was, I subscribed to Linux Pro Magazine years and years ago, and I remember seeing all these ads for all these Linux events, none of them remotely close to me. And that, that always kind of got to me. So in the back of my mind, I had always had this idea for, it would be nice if there was something closer. And uh, I, I was getting involved in Uclug at the time, and Uclug is kind of amazing. Uh, well, for, I should explain what Uclug is first. UCLUG, Upstate Carolina Linux Users Group. And uh, so it's the upstate of South Carolina, the 85 corridor. Most people would consider it kind of southeastern flyover country, that spot between Atlanta and Charlotte. Um, but Uclug has some amazing people in it. And for being in a spot between Charlotte and Atlanta, the mailing list actually has... I think several hundred people on it. It's actually kind of staggering. But anyway, uh, at one particular Uclug meeting, Dave Yates, who at the time was hosting the Lot of Linux Links podcast, was talking to David Nally, who at the time was just involved in lots and lots of open source stuff and working for a, uh, a major manufacturer as more or less their IT arm. Uh, I, I believe Confluence out in Pickens. Uh, they make all kinds of like whitewater equipment, things like that. Um, myself, uh, John Yeary, uh, John Yeary's amazing. He's, he's in Greenville and he's, he was on the review board for years and years for Java one. He was, he, he is way up there in, in Java and the sun community. Um, uh, Jace Eckerd, a whole bunch of other people like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, Yates and Nally were talking about having an event here and as soon as I heard that, I just beelined in and brain dumped right on top of it. I was like, yes, yes, let, let's do this. We need to do this. Um, but all of us weren't foolish. We know that that's a huge amount of work. So we thought, hey, let's, let's bring in the other lugs in the area because they're going to be our attendee base anyway, right? Yeah, more hands make for lighter work. So the low-hanging fruit was we went to Ale, the Atlanta Linux. Uh, uh, it was more or less the lug for uh, Atlanta. Uh, Cola lug in Columbia, South Carolina. CSC lug, which is Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and we got a lot of good people from that, too. But uh, here's one of the first lessons. More hands do not necessarily make for lighter work. The more people there are, I mean, just communicating between a group of a dozen people. Think about the overhead it takes to have 12 people on the same page to do anything. It's, it's, it's really time-consuming just to have people on the same page communication-wise. Uh, it became a, a too-many-cooks-in-the-kitchen problem. It took us several months just to get everyone who was interested in all these different lugs to show up into the same place at the same time to review a venue to see if it would work that like that kind of communication overhead. It's a, it's a real problem. 
and and uh, because of this, like there was just a lot of turning the wheels without accomplishing much at the very beginning. This led to some attrition and bleed out, but you know nobody had skin in the game yet. There was no barrier to entry to organize a conference that hasn't happened yet. So there's also no barrier to leaving. Um, but uh, enough people kind of attritioned out that then we kind of had a critical mass of a core of people who wanted to make it happen and were kind of already on the same page in some sort of way anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, even though the core of the Southeast Linux Fest team came out of Ucklug for sure, like Dave Yates was the first president, that's Ucklug. David Nally was the first vice president, Ucklug. I was the first speaker coordinator, Ucklug. John Yeary was the first treasurer, also Ucklug. Uh, Jace Eckert came on and helped us, that's also Ucklug. But we, we did pick up valuable people out of other lugs that we still have with us today. Eugene out of, uh, Eugene Ma out of, uh, Charleston's lug, Shea Walters out of Cola lug, Chuck Payne out of L. So I, I don't want to discourage you from talking to other lugs to try to get people. There, there can still be gold found there. Just you got to pan a little harder for it. Okay. Um, so our first year, um, we decided to have our event in Clemson at the University of Clemson. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Clemson, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, our sales pitch, if you think about it, is kind of this. Hey, we're planning a conference. You've never heard of it. We have no experience, no proven track record. Uh, the event's going to be in the middle of nowhere. The official hotel is a really swank two-story Chos hotel. I'm sure that's oh, at least a star and a half. You'll need to fly into Greenville-Spartanburg International. I'm going to guess that's going to be at least one connection, maybe two if you didn't start from a major air hub. Um, so with all that in mind, could you please cut us a check for several thousand dollars? <laughs> And I'm guessing that took off like wildfire. Uh, well, surprisingly, uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark Hinkle. Um, I'm I'm unsure where he is these uh, is these days. Uh, I am unsure where Mark Hinkle is employed these days. Last I checked, I believe he was somewhere in the Apache Foundation. Uh, but at the time, he was the community manager with Xenos. And he knew David Nally because David Nally was using Xenos at Confluence uh, to help uh, manage and monitor all their machines. To great benefit, uh, I believe he saved the, the CEO's personal machine from hard drive failure through Xenos because Xenos said, wow. uh, excuse me, your, your, drive, your drive is uh, about to die in this machine. <laughs> you can imagine how much that banked um, some, some goodwill with the CEO. Oh, for sure. Um, and so, um, given that David Nally had contributed all this extra stuff back into Xenos, Mark Hinkle said, hey, this guy's doing good work for us. Let's take a flyer. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. And my response was that Adam Savage Mythbusters, what am I doing? Is this real life moment? You know, when Adam's doing constructing some crazy machine and he just looks up and goes, what am I doing? Sure. <laughs> Is this happening? Uh, so, it turns out, Sweat equity does have value still uh, in the FOSS world, especially. And uh, thankfully for the Southeast Lynx Fest, David Nelly had banked a, a whole bunch of sweat equity with Xenos and other open source projects. Um, and lo and behold, Dave Yates, who his lot of Linux Blinks podcast, uh, it's defunct now, but if I'm sure it's somewhere on the internet, you can go listen to it. It's literally. Him getting into his Honda Civic on the on the commute home from work, 
and he would either just talk about Linux as he was using it because he's a big Debian. He loves while he was driving. He did this. Yes. He, wow. His passion for Debian is immense. It's as deep as my passion for Gen two. And is he doing podcasting at all, or did he get out of it altogether? I he unplugged from the community together. I, I think he focused, uh, especially with having a bunch of uh, little kiddos growing up. Oh, I think sure. He focused on his family, and well, that that's was that's a fair trade. A part of the a part of that. Um, but anyway, um, so he would literally just get into his Honda Civic, punch record, and and he would call other people and talk to them in the in the Linux and open source realm. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how far of a reach he had just hitting the record button in his Honda Civic and driving home. It's, I believe it. There's something authentic about that. Yes, and in fact, part of part of the show, part of the regular part of the show was he would stop at the same gas station every day and get a Mountain Dew, and that was. Live record his part, and it's Mountain Dew time. <laughs> um, so uh, we also had a surprising outreach through Dave Yates. Um, uh, my contribution was kind of a speaker coordinator because uh, I wanted to have some some. I wanted to bring in some outside blood to, to come talk to Uclug, and I was kind of shocked actually how many quote unquote FOSS celebrities were within an easy drive. Uh, there was a guy who works a lot in wine, and um, I believe he he may be involved in – he may have been the genesis of Zorn OS. He kind of did a, a distro that kind of tried to have the look and feel and even .NET capabilities of Windows. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that Zorn had .NET capabilities, but I was aware of it trying to be the he, Windows he wanted, alternative. He wanted uh, – if, if I'm remembering correctly, it, he, he, the goal was to create a distro that had a user interface that any regular Windows user would immediately feel at home in. Sure. And where .NET through Mono was right. kind of baked in. So all that .NETness that's in Windows wouldn't right. be such a huge problem. Sure. Uh, there's also uh, Ryan Gordon, otherwise known as Iculus. Turns out he lives in Charlotte, and at the time, he was quite literally the entire Linux gaming industry. People would bring him up on stage and introduce him as the Linux gaming industry. Uh, he did things like port Unreal Tournament to Linux and port Doom 3 to Linux. And I don't know how much I can say, but I'm, I have a high degree of confidence he's probably visited Valve at some point. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, so so I I had been bringing speakers into Uclug, so it was a natural fit for me to kind of be speaker coordinator because I was already kind of doing that sort of thing. And in a bit of serendipity, uh, so there was a, a conference that uh, in Atlanta, Atlanta Linux Showcase, that was kind of like a Linux fest. It was kind of close. Unfortunately, uh, the Atlanta Linux Showcase got to the point where it stopped being a fun thing we do on a weekend and started being a lot of work. And so the organizers kind of burned out on it. I think that that's my interpretation of it. I could be wrong. Uh, but Chris DeBona uh, put up a blog at the time on it. We're where, talking about the Google guy. Yes. The, okay. yes, the old school Chris DeBona way back, way back before Google was the behemoth it is today. Gotcha. Um, so Chris had a blog entry saying, it's a shame that ALS doesn't exist anymore. I wish we could have a Linux conference in the Southeast. We saw this blog and promptly bombed the comment section on it. <laughs> if you go there today, the post is still up. 
my comment is still there. Dave Yates' comment is still there. There may be other cell staff members who 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 replied to this back in '08, and this is this is when our we were first getting serious about it. We registered sure. a domain and everything. But I mean, even then, Google was still a. I mean, they were a big company. Oh, in 08, yeah, absolutely. You know? Google was a behemoth in search and advertising at the time. But that was about it. YouTube was still not sure. really a Google thing, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Um. So. We, we more or less prodded Chris DeBona and said, so, how serious are you about having a Linux conference in the Southeast? And it turns out he was very serious. He offered to speak. <laughs> so, wow. Okay. Wow. Um, so, you know, we got the ball rolling and we uh, we got the, the Clemson Linux users group, the student group there on campus to sponsor the space. So we got it for, for dirt cheap. And my first memory, uh, other than a couple of stories i can't share because they were in private when i when i first got to meet a couple people like alan hicks <laughs> okay um uh was i was walking across the street from the hotel to the bar where the party was going to be at and there was three people walking shoulder to shoulder the other way towards the hotel and they saw that i was clearly wearing some linuxy geeky stuff uh i had you know i had my credentials on and they immediately flagged me down and said, hello, are you Jeremy? I mean, just imagine my surprise at that to begin with. Oh, oh nice to meet you. I'm with Chris DeBona's entourage. <laughs> His entourage? Chris <laughs> uh, DeBona has an entourage? Just oh. just to be clear, you didn't have an entourage. Uh, no, it was just <laughs> me. Uh, but it turns out Chris DeBona had an entourage. It was a team of uh, people from a couple of different Google offices. I think uh, some Birmingham Googlers. Um, and they had showed up as part of the team there for Google. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, a little bit of bizarro world there. Uh, so, again, with this, you know, shoestring with no track record in the middle of nowhere in Clemson, uh, we weren't expecting very much. We got way more than we expected. Uh, the place was packed out. The room where we had sponsors was kind of like a New York City subway at rush hour. If I can give you an idea for how close humanity was to humanity. Um, and in fact, it, the fire marshal had, if the fire marshal were there, we would have been in trouble. Let's put it that way. Uh, so it was, it was successful beyond our wildest expectations. Um, but here's some important things that we learned, or I learned at least from an organizational standpoint that I think could help others. Um, if you can get a student group to sponsor a college space for you, for heaven's sake, do it. You're talking about less than $1,000 all in for the space, including insurance. And, oh, by the way, it's a college. They're going to have the Internet there for you already. They're going to have the AV and presentation equipment there for you already. It solves so many problems for you. So if you can do that, for heaven's sake, please do. Linux Fest Northwest, I think, I, at first, uh, I, hadn't been, I hadn't been to Linux Fest Northwest for years, and I was kind of skeptical of having it at a small community college. When I finally went, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Their costs are totally under control because they're at the college, and because the college is in a small town, they have the full support of the college as well. Uh, it's a good way to go if you can find a solution like that. <clears throat> um. The response we got from Clemson, however, might not be what you were expecting. Uh, our event was in June, second weekend of June, which is orientation at Clemson. The building we were in was the student center, and we took up a lot of it. 
most of it, in fact. Uh, Clemson actually made a mistake in booking it, and we shouldn't have been able to get the space. And they came back and asked us to relinquish it. We said no. Because obviously we can't go back to sponsors and say, huh, we don't have space anymore, guys. Well, and your speakers, and you've got attendees. Exactly. And I mean, it's too late. That ship has sailed. Uh, so Clemson's response was essentially to make sure we got the message that we weren't welcome back in June at that facility was to book it out for the next decade. They, the, the school booked the, yes. the venue out for the next decade. The entire month for a decade. Message received. <laughs> so Find okay. somewhere else. Exactly. Um, and this is, this is part of the, unus- the, 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 the uniqueness of self uh, started this very first year. I didn't think it would be that socially successful because geeks tend to be notoriously introverted and a tad antisocial. Right. So the, the party we had was at Rockhoppers, and I hope you get the synergy there. A Rockhopper is a kind of penguin. So imagine our surprise when the bar there was called Rock Hoppers and, in sure. fact, had lots of penguins in it. And if you go there today, you may find a bunch of Slackware stickers because we asked to put them up, and they actually allowed us to. Really? Yes. Built-in branding. Yeah. Um, Dual Core uh, came out and wrapped live improv right there all throughout the bar, just moving around with a mic and blasting. Cool. Uh, and this was before he was he blew up and became huge. He was still living in in Ohio at the time, I think. Um, so this is the social part actually went like gangbusters to my surprise, and that's a theme that continues on. Um, here's some good ideas we had for that first year that may not be immediately obvious, and I credit a lot of these good ideas to Dave Yates and David Nally because Yates went to OLF every year. He loved it. He kept going back. So that was his exposure. And David Nally went to big places like Lisa because he had an employer who had that kind of IT needs and mm-hmm. was willing to invest in training like that. Sure. Um, FRS radios, really good idea, particularly if your space is non-contiguous like it was at Clemson. and It just saves you so much wear and tear on your feet having to communicate with each other. It's a good investment. But don't get rechargeable battery ones because you're going to buy these radios and you're going to use them like you're just going to beat the crap out of them for one week. And then they're going to sit there on a shelf for the rest of the year. Needless to say, that's not the kind of life cycle a rechargeable battery appreciates. So that's just money down the drain. Thankfully, I had the foresight to buy some radios where the rechargeable battery is actually in the shape of double A's. So if the rechargeable battery dies, you just yank it out and throw in some double A's. Now, did you know that at the time, or was that something that you just got lucky on? I kind of got lucky on that one. Um, it, it, it wasn't a feature I was looking for out of the gate, but it was a nice checkbox to have. Sure. Um, hospitality suite. Something I just I would not have considered. I think this was David Nally's idea. Um Speakers need a place where they can sit down quietly, unmobbed from the attendees, if for nothing else, to work on their talks. You'd be surprised how many speakers will tweak their talks right before they give them because the material is alive. It's not dead. They have to they keep it up to date. We also had speakers, and this was some of the feedback we got. We had speakers that, quote, could plausibly seem human, unquote. And I think that's in large part by selecting talks blindly. 
Um, you know, and I'll get to that in, in depth in a little bit later. Um, and we also had an unapologetic enthusiasm for desktop Linux. Our first two keynotes were the project manager for Fedora, uh, Paul Fields at the time, and the project manager for OpenSUSE, um, Zonker at the time. Um, so while we did have obviously a bunch of enterprise Linux stuff, we were unapologetically enthusiastic about desktop Linux and we made prominent desktop Linux content. Awesome. Um, and we, we mirrored OLF's attendee model. Um, I, this was actually over my protest. Um, I just, as someone who runs a business accounting always pops into the back of your mind, even if it's not in the front, it's at least in the back chugging away. OLF's attendee model, if you're, OLF is the Ohio Linux Fest, by the way. Um, I should probably explain that. If you're not familiar with their model, it's free to attend if you want, or you can pay, I believe it's $60, $65, and they will give you a t-shirt, maybe some goodies, maybe some drink tickets to the party. And my response was free. Uh, could we just charge like $5? Like it doesn't sound like a lot, but five times 500 makes a difference on paying bills. Something. You get something out of this, and then they, maybe they would value it more if they put some other own skin in the game, you know? Exactly. Uh, I actually I actually protested that, and, you know, we voted because you know, we were a nonprofit uh, corporation, so we, we held a vote with the officers, and I think I was the only vote for having uh, the free option not be an option. And boy, was I wrong. And uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, it, was, it was a really good idea to copy OLF's attendee model. You'd be surprised how much cynicism you can vanquish from the room simply by having a free attendee option. It removes a lot of cynicism from people's minds. So, uh, and, and I think we kind of, in general, we catered to people who were using Linux and open source because they were passionate about it not merely because it was a tool to accomplish a job and get a paycheck. And I, I know that sounds demeaning, and I want it to. We wanted the people who would be there even if Linux couldn't earn them a dime because they loved it. And we got those kind of people. Um, uh, so, like, the person who came up with the idea of having the craft beer share itself, he's a public school teacher. He teaches science in public schools, but he uses Linux because he just loves it. Not the kind of person you're going to get at, like, Lisa or OSCON, needless to say. Um, so after we were, we were summarily vanquished from Clemson by their own scheduling, uh, the next year we went to the uh, – the next two years, we went to the Spartanburg Marriott – I like to say this is the only imaginable scenario where someone could claim Spartanburg, South Carolina was a clear upgrade, and I'm allowed to say that because I was born and raised there. For the self-attendees who are already chuckling listening to this, we're going to get to the bridal party story. Just give me a minute. Um, our first year there, when we arrived to start setting up, there was a cotillion going on, and self's unofficial mascot, Alan Hicks, was there. Um, uh, I should explain a bit about Alan Hicks. He is a Linux geek and a redneck kind of equal parts stirred in with maybe some Everclear, I guess. He is a true Southern gentleman, yeah. though. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely true. Um, 
you he stands out so visibly with a giant belt buckle, jeans that are just one size too tight, cowboy boots, uh, checkered shirt, cowboy hat with a sweat stain rim, uh, you know, oh, the works. Um, but the reason why he's kind of an unofficial mascot is, beyond the fact that he has the most enormous southern drawl you'll ever hear, is that he that dichotomy he has. So, like, the first year at Clemson, he gave a talk on the networking stack, all seven layers of it. And as speaker coordinator, you know, I was bouncing around the rooms to make sure everything was okay. And I, I was in his room when he started that talk. And I watched as everyone – well, not everyone, but a good – number of people in the audience kind of shifted uncomfortably in their seats, wondering who this local yokel is and what he could possibly have of knowledge and merit for me to learn. And he gets up there with an enormous amount of, shall we say, chaw in his mouth. While he's presenting, he pulls up his dip cup, spits into it, and says, without missing a beat, all right, y'all, sit down. We're going to cover the networking stack, all seven layers, soup to nuts. By the time you get out of here, you'll be able to configure any router and get it done. <laughs> and the and room you, just drops silent. And, and if you know Alan Hicks, or if you've ever had the pleasure of meeting Alan Hicks, he is just a charming individual. If I, not to take away from your story here or your, your presentation, <laughs> but he, my, my four-year-old daughter was there this year, right? Yes. And uh, he had never met her before. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said I had kids, but I don't know that I went into a lot of detail. And he got down on one knee and he said, your daddy told me that you were the most beautiful lady that he had ever laid eyes on. And I can see that he did not do you justice. And her eyes, Jeremy, I mean, her mouth went ear to ear. A, the biggest grin you've ever seen on a little girl's mouth running to her mom going, that man just said I was, you know, I mean, he just, he has that way with people because he's just such an, he's just such a, a welcoming, warming individual. And yet he is your Southern hick, your stereotypical Southern hick. Let me book in that for you. He calls his pickup trucks Stonewall and General Lee. <laughs> I can see him doing that too. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, Alan Hicks is sitting there as the long line of the cotillion is entering the ballroom and every single woman that passes him, every one, he takes the hat off, pulls it down, gives a bow and says, howdy, ma'am. <laughs> howdy, ma'am. So pleased to meet you, ma'am. Good evening, ma'am. And they just don't know what to do with him. They, they, they want to look, but they're terrified that they're going to be judged because it's a cotillion. It's kind of, you know, hoity toity. But you can't help but notice the number of women right before they pop into the ballroom who turn back and cut an eye at him. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little, ooh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, some thoughts about uh, our first our, our first time at a hotel, uh, our first two years there at the Marriott. The space is far more utilitarian than, than most college campus facilities, and, and it's what you would expect. It's a business designed to turn around money around conferences. It's, it's just going to be better designed for the purpose. Um, better capable of handling crowds, big hallways, things like that. Uh, there's staff available, whereas if you're at a college campus, like it's called the support desk, it could be a while, whereas at a hotel, it's page the guy, he's there immediately. Um, and then there's the whole convenience of sleeping where the event is, particularly if you have a party with alcohol involved. However, pre be prepared to pay for that. Uh, all of those things come with cost, very real cost. Uh, my back of the envelope math for you is 
10 to 20 times more expensive than holding it on a college campus, closer to the 20, a lot closer to the 20, if you have a student group sponsoring the space for you. Just, just bear in mind, there's very real costs to those upgrades. Um, also, some of those costs are hidden. You're not going to be getting a free lunch on the internet. There's not going to be an enormous pipe coming into the college where they don't care if you go take 300 megabits of it because they won't even notice that. The hotel will say, well, if you want that, I hope your checkbook can write a lot of zeros in it. Same thing with AV. Uh, You're going to get severely price gouged in internet and AV at almost any hotel, period. And this is why Self does its own internet and its own AV at every facility it goes to. It's simply cost prohibitive with our current attendee structure and base to do it any other way for example to rent one projector for one day at a deeply discounted rate from the hotel vendor whose name i will not name because i actually really do appreciate their staff there they were like they enjoy our event is you know a ton it costs more than just the one day rental costs more by a hundred dollars than the cost of going out and buying a new projector. The other side of that is you have the technical expertise there on site to set all this stuff up. So whereas maybe some conferences, it's not just the cost of the projector, but it's the cost of having somebody to configure it and get the laptop to work and all of that. You got a bunch of Linux geeks to t- deal with that for you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so on to the not, well, the glamorous and not so glamorous parts of being at the Marriott. So... Let's get to the bridal party story. So at the time, now, now at this point in time, Mark Kinkle, who was our big you know, initial sponsor who came aboard, was now working as the community manager for cloud.com. I forget who has acquired cloud.com and what it is, but I think they're still a thing. They're just, it's, it's not that name anymore. But as part of their marketing, they had a giant, I mean giant, cardboard tux it had to have been four feet tall minimum and boy was cardboard tux popular. So our, our party was at the hotel bar and lo and behold, it only took about a half hour before tux made his way into the party and was dancing with random attendees. Okay. But this is, this is probably after some alcohol has. Oh, lots of alcohol, (laughs) lots of alcohol. Um, while our party was getting underway, a, shall we say, classy, in air quotes, wedding party tried to crash our own party. They very quickly discovered their ability to consume alcohol was vastly inferior to a Linux geek's ability to consume alcohol. The wedding party then became increasingly like an episode of Jerry Springer. I'll spare you some of the details, but debauchery... <laughs> Nudity, <laughs> police, multiple arrests. If if you can name it, and it's hilarious to watch from a somewhat, you know, somewhat distant, it happened. Kind of. <laughs> I like to say, till, uh, the result of that wedding was till death do we part, or at least until the cops show up. The wedding party descending into Jerry Springer became somewhat infamous. Um, that, that it's probably the the way that our conference is most well-known to people who have never otherwise attended it, bizarrely. 
but it has some nasty sides to that story that aren't very much told. Um, so pay very close attention to your contracts. Our first year at the hotel, a drink ticket had a defined cash value. The second year at the hotel, the contract was altered to a drink ticket is a drink. A very subtle change. I was the one in charge of negotiating the contract with the hotel since I was so close to the hotel. Change blew by me. Change blew by everyone else on the board. We it didn't seem like a problem. Now, we were paranoid by nature. But if, if you don't understand the subtlety of the difference, allow me to explain. A drink ticket goes from a cash value to a drink ticket is a drink. What if the drink is Johnny Walker? What if the drink is Hennessy? Doesn't matter. Drink ticket will buy it. Who's picking up the tab? Jeremy's wallet. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, not well. Ouch! Oh, you're skipping ahead here. Not, not, not personally speaking. I'm just saying. It's, well, you actually, know. you're kind of right. Okay. That kind of descended into madness. Now we were paranoid by nature, so I remember vividly, um, either Saturday or Sunday morning. First thing we asked to be brought a receipt of the bar tab to make sure everything lined up with our expectations. We were brought. A receipt from the bar, not the receipt from the bar. The the individual receipt uh, receipt we were shown was about in line with what we were expecting. The horror show that was waiting was not. So, if your party, by the way, is not closed to the public, you've got to separate the till. Um. You, you can't let the public intermix with your attendees anytime there that that kind of stuff is going on. The, there's too many possibilities for financial shenanigans. Basically, I can't I can't absolutely confirm this to you, but I I have a high degree of confidence. I'm pretty sure not only did we get just blown out of the water on people gobbling up top shelf with drink tickets. I'm pretty sure we ended up paying for all of the booze consumed by the wedding party and maybe even anyone else in that bar that night. That Now, that didn't hit home until the next year when we went to another hotel. Hotels have kind of a courtesy inventory thing they do. So if you move from one hotel to another, the new hotel will call the old hotel and ask for inventory of what your group consumed so they know what they need to bring on site so they don't over order and they don't under order it's a common courtesy in the industry pretty much all the hotels do it you can imagine my shock when our new hotel informed me that they were bringing in dozens of cases of coors like all like all of our organizers have kind of looked at each other um our, our attendees don't drink coors None of them do, even if it's free. Um, so that that was kind of the smoking gun that mm, we probably ended up paying for a bunch of people who weren't even at the event, too. I'll put it to you this way. The cost of the bar tab alone exceeded gross receipts, more or less bankruptcy for the event. I, at the time, happened to be saving up to buy a house. So the down payment on my house became what bailed itself out. You took the down payment on your house and used it to make sure that self would continue. Yeah. 
I just want to make sure that, that that message is coming through clearly because I think that sometimes people don't understand the personal links that conference organizers go through or the people that really care about Linux, specifically desktop Linux, the, the links that people are willing to go to to make sure that something they believe in continues. Yeah, and, you know, I wanted the event to continue and... Also, I felt really terrible because I was the point man for that contract. And while it slipped by everyone else, too, I was kind of the first line there. So, Wow. Yeah. Um, so after that, there was an enormous organizational exodus. Um, I like to say reality became too real at that point. Uh, Yates bowed out. Nally bowed out. Yeary bowed out. We, we lost... More than half of the board of the board for the conference. Your upper management, yeah, they're yeah. gone. So uh, that brought into immediate question: Well, who's in charge? And I, all the way down at speaker coordinator, looked up, and there's no one above me. Yes, okay, all right. It's not all lemons. We were able to make some lemonade. The very first day after the conference. And hearing, in no small part because there were several employees of theirs there, um, Google heard about the bridal party story, called me the very first day after the conference ended, and demanded party sponsorship for next year. <laughs> demanded it. So it sounded like a great story to them. That's a great marketing opportunity. Price was not even in, in the question. They said, we demand the party. <laughs> There was not even a how much is it, where is the event. It was the party. We, we are sponsoring it. That's fantastic. Um, but this also led to um, a lot of changes in terms of the focus of the event. Because the focus of the event was more or less, let's do what we're interested in as passionate people. Well, when you're that deeply in the hole, you better much more seriously consider how friendly you are to sponsors. Uh, and so we had to sort of take into account other viewpoints as well. And that um, that in part led to us moving to the Blake Hotel in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so the, the, the idea of moving to Charlotte was, A, it's, it's kind of a nice in-between spot for a lot of places. It's easy to drive to Charlotte from Raleigh-Durham, from Asheville, from Columbia, from Charleston, from Greenville-Spartanburg, from Atlanta. All those places are an easy day trip to Charlotte. It's got a major air hub. That was huge for sponsors. We got all kinds of sponsors we would have never gotten before because it became so easy to fly in compared to previously where it's flying to Greenville-Spartanburg, which if you're coming from, again, a non-major airport, that could be a four-connector kind of thing, like four different planes to get there, and then rent a car and drive. Even at the Spartanburg Marriott, rent a car and drive. Um, the Blake is... So, <laughs> a, a little... Let, let me backtrack a little bit on the name itself of the Blake. The hotel in question used to be called the Adams Mark uh, it's in downtown Charlotte. When we got there, it was called the Blake, a group, uh, the Amsterdam Hospitality Group. They're like a boutique hotel company out of New York. They bought the place, and they were just ripping it up as fast as they possibly could and renovating it because the Adams Mark was in just such a state of decay, and it, it, it was even at the rate they were ripping it up, which was unbelievable, it was a multi-year project. Um, because it was going to be nonstop ongoing renovations, they knew they had to sweeten the pot to get events there, especially because the, you know, 
the while everything had a nice shiny new coat of paint behind that was still several decades of neglect you you can't just wipe that away with paint you know we we would open up like the utility boxes in the conference rooms to patch into sound and it looked like a horror show that might electrocute you like we're talking some seriously sketchy stuff but the deal was unbelievably good like for a hotel an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude lower than what you would expect the cost to be, especially for the enormous amount of space they had. That facility had almost 30,000 square feet. So the Sheraton that self has been at for years and years that most people now associate with the event, that's, that's maybe half the size of this hotel. It was huge. Um, <clears throat> now that also has its downsides. I'll, I am, um, while the first reaction is, wow, look at all this space. What all can we do with all this space? What you don't think about is how much walking you have to do to cover that much space. Uh, and I was at my heaviest uh, at this time running the event. I was, I was over 300 pounds. I had a Fitbit, and I clocked in over 100,000 steps every single day of that conference. So uh, kind of like in Zombieland, uh, rule one, cardio. Uh, it's not fun to do 100,000 steps multiple days in a row, essentially wearing a 150-pound weight vest. So if you're going to be like the guy in charge and you're going to have to run around to all these places and you know deal with things, uh, you seriously consider your own fitness if there's a lot of space. It doesn't seem like it could be a problem. Trust me, it will be a problem. The second year at the Blake... My feet were just totally fried. It took me a half. The last time I left the conference space, it took me a half hour to make my way to the lobby because I had to stop at every chair. I was, my feet were just done for. I was done for the entire week after self even. In addition, uh, the Blake in a, uh, had a couple of other challenges. So the good, the good part about the Blake was that sweetheart deal, the amazing space. It had its bad sides too. Um, in addition to the horrors looking beneath the nice, shiny new coats of paint, uh, internet was difficult. Uh, the basement utility room, so the, the Blake the, the Blake slash the Adams Mark slash whatever Starwood calls it now that they own it. It's two separate hotel towers that share a joint basement between them for all the utility stuff, all the phones, all the power, everything. That basement was built like a nuclear fallout bunker. I am talking maybe a foot thick reinforced concrete an enormous underground wide open space and somewhat terrifying to be in like for example and and you know their own engineer would yeah he was he was really thrilled to have a bunch of geeks there because boy he had some people he could bounce some problems off of yeah i bet um to give you an idea of how terrifying that basement was they had giant banks of lead-acid batteries used as backup should the power fail. They were connected by bar bus. That means giant chunk of metal from terminal to terminal. These are not sealed lead-acid batteries. They are pour the acid in to top it up as needed lead-acid batteries. Sure. In the words of the engineer who took me into that room to kind of plan our internet, don't touch it, don't go near it. There's no second chances. You touch that bar, you're instantly gone. And by the way, they didn't even have like 50 cent caution tape marking it out. 
we uh, we called time at so uh, Charlotte at the time was only serviced uh, really seriously fast internet speeds by Time Warner Cable. Uh, the, well, there there was a there's a one company that did Metro E, but they essentially wanted a gold mint for it. So we we went with Time Warner Cable. We called them up. They said, "Hey, no problem. We already provide service to this building." Turns out they meant TV service, not internet service. When the truck showed up the week of the event, I got a nasty phone call saying, yeah, um, about your internet service, this entire city block is wired receive only. Uh, I don't know what bean counter decided to scrimp a few pennies on that equipment rollout decision, but I would sincerely like to do some percussive maintenance on their skull. (laughs) Um, Okay. And to, to the great credit of the uh, the technician with Time Warner, he scrambled. He started looking around for the nearest point that was wired send receive. He's going to figure this out. Like he's he's just he's he pulled out like the big map and laid it on the hood of the trunk. He's like, look, there's got to be a turn. There's got to be a junction here somewhere. Let's, right. Let's find the junction. Sure. There was a junction in the sidewalk in front of the building. So we we pulled in the hotel people were like. Can we do a line from your sidewalk through the front window and route it down into the basement and reroute? And like, okay, <laughs> yes. So we told the Time Warner guy. He lifts up the manhole. He starts fishing around in there, and then he goes, "Yeah, this is send receive, but to get that line to that window, I'm going to have to cross two inches of this public sidewalk. I'm going to have to have a permit for that." For two for two inches? Two inches of sidewalk. The manhole cover was almost an ent- the entire size right. of a sidewalk slab. But to cross that two inches left over, I'm going to need a permit from the city of Charlotte. Can you imagine how little they cared when I called them on a Friday for that? To ask them for a permit for two for inches a permit of, of sidewalk? To put a cable over two inches of sidewalk. And from their perspective... If they just ignore me, I'm gone Monday anyway. If if you know if you had you now the Time Warner guy won't do it without a permit. So you're kind of hosed now because now you can't get the permit and you can't get him to run the wire. Exactly. And I I called the the Charlotte CVB and they were quite helpful like they like they within an hour had the name of the guy who could get me the permit. But they can't write the permit for me. Um, you know, one hand of government was willing to play ball. The sure. other wasn't. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, the year that happened, the internet was sponsored. Naturally. Uh, Shiri Cabral of great MySQL community fame, if you're listening, sorry, sorry. Um, she sponsored the internet in part because she wanted to have a nice, fast connection when she was doing database training. <sighs> Well, I, I, I did have a, a kind of emergency pressure relief. At the time, the phone that I uh, used as my primary was a Motorola Photon 4G. It is a Sprint WiMAX phone. Now, the week after I went under a two-year contract for that phone, Sprint killed WiMAX nationwide. So I went from being on the near-future rollout list to the never-going-to-happen list a week after I went under a two-year contract. Needless to say, I had some bitterness over that with Sprint. Um, 
but when I was in Charlotte, so the way it worked is if you already had WiMAX deployed, they were going to leave that up for a minimum of two years. Whatever was there, they weren't going to touch. So Charlotte was an active WiMAX 4G zone for Sprint. This was towards the end of that two-year deprecation, more or less, that Sprint had. So for almost two years, devices were attritioning out of the WiMAX network in Charlotte, but the capacity being put into that network was unchanged. So when I fired up my Photon 4G and did a speed test, I pulled somewhat reliably between 30 and 60 symmetric megabits. 30 and 60 megabits symmetric. Wow. On your cell phone? On my WiMAX And this is back in, what, 2012, 2011? Somewhere around 12 to 13. Okay. Okay, cool. So, all right, Sprint, you say that plan's unlimited? Let's find out. I moved my (laughs) Photon 4G to the window of our command center so that it could get the best possible line of sight. And then the our, our Slackware network team tapped into that tether, and that became the conference network. So you, you called your network team. You're like, hey, guys, I've got it on the cell phone. Now figure out a way to get this into all of the wiring infrastructure that we have throughout the conference. Yeah, so they already had everything wired up. They just needed the pipe to the world. So right. WiMAX became the pipe to the world. Yeah, but I mean, you, there must have been some sort of Linux hackery going on because you have to go from a essentially a, 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 a you know you've got this 4G connection, but now you've got to either get a cable tether. I believe the way we the way we ha- made that work was uh, since I was running rooted Android, I simply tethered, and that became a Wi-Fi hotspot. Then one of the Slackware people took their laptop, connected to that, and then used Network Manager to then turn the wired connection into DHCP. Yep. And that became the way into their existing infrastructure. That's so cool. So we, our last, we had a, we had a wired network to a small air hop to a big air hop. (laughs) Uh, It turns out Sprint wasn't kidding when they said unlimited because I kind of transferred multiple terabytes in one weekend. (laughs) And did that show up on your bill then? Uh, yes, and as it turns out, even if you transfer multiple terabytes of data, Sprint still prints out the bill in bytes. It's really, really funny looking at a bill from Sprint where the numbers practically roll over into other columns. But they didn't charge me a dime more, and frankly, they shouldn't have since they, they got their money's worth on 4G that I never really got service for, except for that weekend anyway. Some of the end thoughts in results on the Blake... Part of what made the Blake highly... The second year at the Blake was easily the least well-received from the attendees. And that's because everyone at the hotel knew that the hotel was being sold and, in fact, already had more or less been sold. It was a matter of, you know, dotting final I's, crossing final T's. So everyone who was an employee knew that their ultimate fate was already in hand with a new employer and they were more or less just in purgatory or limbo or however you want to describe it. Their employer isn't going to exist sure. anymore. The new guy might not retain them. If they do, who knows what they're going to be doing, what the compensation It's just tremendously right. demoralizing for their employees that were there. Sure. So as you might imagine, they weren't exactly real go-getters to help us. And, oh, by the way, while all this was happening, 
they were still furiously renovating because I, I imagine part of it is the buyers, which ultimately was Starwood. They're going to want the hotel to be, at least be somewhat finished looking. <laughs> so like the renovation went into just bizarre mode. Like we showed up and there were toilets in the hall, not like two toilets, but dozens of toilets on multiple floors, you know, weird stuff like that. And, you know, needless to say, they weren't exactly pristine. Shall we say? Wait, these are used toilets at the end of the hallway? Yeah, I'm sure. Like they, I'm sure they put some comet in there before they moved them in the hall. But lovely, dude. <laughs> Bet that made for a great aroma. Oh, ah, uh, well, it made for some funny pictures on social media. Um, uh, another thing, you know, um, a, a handicapped attendee was booked a room at the hotel was told it was handicapped accessible. When they got there, they discovered it was very much aggressively handicapped unfriendly, in fact. And while they were angry at the hotel for that, and they should have been, they also burned me to the ground for that one. And uh, as an organizer, that's part of the job description that kind of goes unpublished. And even if it wasn't per se the right thing to do to unload on me on that, as an organizer, like you just got to suck that up. That's not the hill you want to die on. You're going to catch flack for things you don't do. It's part of the job. Deal with it. <laughs> I wish I had some a better way to phrase that for you, but it's it's just the it is what it is. On the plus side, because the Blake was so unfathomably cheap and we attracted hosts of new sponsors by being in Charlotte, I at least got my down payment back over the 2 years. So you were eventually able to buy a home. I yes, I I finally got that down payment back. From then on, we have been at the uh, the Sheraton Charlotte Airport. Um, it has all the benefits of Charlotte that we came to in the first place. You know, the, the uh, Charlotte Douglas International, major convenient interstate travel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No toilets in the hallway. No batteries that'll kill you on by touching them, etc. <laughs> It was reasonably priced, uh, especially given that it had a free airport shuttle, which is, again, huge, huge for sponsors and even for speakers coming in from afar. Like, don't underestimate how value an airport shuttle is if you're really an event that is regional in scope or bigger. An airport shuttle makes a difference, particularly if your speakers are there on their own dime. And having spoken at LinuxCon North America, I can tell you, even at the very top, you're going to be speaking on your own dime an awful lot. It's just not only does it save those people money, it's so it just it's so much better of an experience to grab your bag and just hop on a bus instead of oh let me go requeue for another line for another hour. It was also nice to have a staff that aggressively wanted to play ball. <laughs> so as part of that, like we've we've really pushed that envelope. For example, when we show up to that hotel now, the hotel shuts down their own wireless network in the conference facility. We become the sole network in the conference space while we're there. Right. Yeah, I've seen that. And that really plays well to all of the people that attend. Yeah, and yeah, word has gotten out that self has some of the best Wi-Fi of any conference ever, regardless of budget or size. It helps when you don't have 20, I wouldn't say crappy, but shall we say non-amazing wireless access points that aren't positioned optimally, better positioned purely for density. Rogue access points, basically. Yeah, and, and they're just going to clutter up the spectrum and make everything slow. So we said, could you kind of turn them all off? And they did. 
And, you know, we, it's down to the point where we have run our own wired network in the ceiling of that hotel. We show up at the hotel, pop the ceiling tile in our knock room, and pull down our cable bundle, and we are ready to roll in all the ballrooms. That, that infrastructure, by the way, it gets more elaborate each year. Yes, <laughs> we, sure we tack added. on. Like, now we have 10 gig runs. Maybe we're going to do some fiber here soon. Um, but all of our work stays up there. I have to imagine especially since the hotel is playing ball with us, you, you got to imagine that the IT guy for the hotel, he's totally got to be using that for his... It, well, didn't, anytime they, didn't they remodel in there at, at some point during yes, this? they have remodeled, and they're going to remodel again, right. uh, and they've left all of our stuff up there. And I imagine if if he has a say-so in it, their IT guy would tell him to leave it, because if he ever has to run stuff for another client, we've done the hard work for him. Pop a tile and plug in. Right. The only downside is I don't think any of it's labeled, is it? <laughs> so it's it's kind of up to Zach to uh, interpret. I'm not sure. I would have to ask Zach that. Um, but if it's not labeled, he's he certainly isn't slowed down and setting it up every year. He's up right. and running pretty quick. Right. That's kind of where self has been. Now, before I go into the real kind of nasty part of this talk, I should probably give you some disclosures. So, unfortunately, the talk is about to touch on some of the political stuff that will happen as part of running event in these joyful, collegial, happy political times that we live in today. Uh, in fairness and in the interest of uh, transparency, I'm going to tell you my own political alignments. I'm not saying this so you'll agree with me. I'm not even asking you to go research these things. I just want you to have the transparency of knowing my own beliefs so you can know where my biases, if I have any, are, and you can make your own informed decision. That's the only reason I'm telling you. With that out of the way, let me go ahead and kind of lay my own cards on the table before we get to the nasty politics. I don't like labels because when you apply a label, people remove the nuance of an individual's positions and they insert their own dogma for what they think the group think is for that label. So I kind of reflexively don't like labels, but if you insist upon applying one, I would say libertarian is the least odious of the labels. Uh, in a former life, I used to be very, very well deeply politically embedded. I worked on the Ron Paul Presidential Campaign Committee in 2008 as a county coordinator. I volunteered a ton. You may even be able to find videos of me hanging up Ron Paul banners all over in South Carolina, who knows where else. Um, I also donated. Part of this was while I was not only working full-time, but doing college full-time. So I donated Till it hurt some of those years because I really believed in that cause at the time. I also worked under a major statewide politically elected official. If you can drop the baggage associated with me giving you this analogy, you know how Hillary Clinton had her own personal IT person who oversaw her email server and all that jazz. You know, again, drop the baggage just as a bare statement of fact. She had a personal IT person. I was kind of like Hillary's personal IT person, but for this statewide elected official. I handled all their IT needs. Personal, company, the works. Now, this put me pretty deeply embedded behind the scenes uh, politically. I was in some meetings with national officials, uh, national party officials, people who had the money to, to, to really pull on the levers of politics people who had real political power. And I was in some of those rooms for some of those meetings. 
Uh, so I have kind of, I, I call it a terrifying clarity as to how politics really works. And uh, my spoiler alert is most people think at least one of the two parties is broken. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to also say that at least a plurality of people think that both parties are seriously broken. No matter how broken you think they are, I assure you, it's way worse if you look under the hood. Uh, I will give you just a brief example to give you a take. How do you think committee assignments in Washington, D.C. are appointed? Do you think they're appointed based upon how well someone knows that particular committee's, you know, what they're working on? Do you think they put a farmer on the ag committee? No. It's based upon the power of the committee. And to get the positions of power within the committees, you are required, let me say that again, required to make mandatory minimum donations to your party's infrastructure. That's the DNC on the Democratic side or the RNC on the Republican side. If you do not make these donations, you are simply removed from any committee that matters. People like to say that money corrupts politics as though it's the donations coming from the outside that's corrupting everything. It's really a system of horrific incentives in terms of the money structure here. Think about it. Where, and we're not talking about small amounts of money, by the way, they have to donate to the party. We're talking six-figure checks to get real positions of power on committees. Six-figure checks you got to write not just once, but every cycle. Where's the money going to come from? It's going to come from lobbyists. So this incentive structure forces congressmen who wish to get power to achieve an end to get in bed with lobbyists to get the money to get the committee position, which, of course, compromises them before they ever get the position on the committee because they're already beholden to someone's wallet. Just a taste of how it really works. And I hope you're as horrified as I am after you heard that. So a little bit more disclosure. Um, I, I am involved in various different groups um, uh, and organizations. Uh, while some of these are not overtly political, due to the nature of their advocacy, they can cross into the political realm. For example, the Free Software Foundation, which I'm a member of. Uh, I'm going to list, by the way, ones I have been a member of and am a member of, just in no particular order. The Free Software Foundation is not an overtly political organization, obviously. But if the government is about to make you know, an enormous purchase for, say, insert proprietary software here without a bidding process, I'm pretty sure the FSF is going to say, excuse me, could you at least take some bids for open source? Could you at least open source the data you're getting from this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the, the organizations that I've been involved in in past and present, Free Software Foundation, Electronic Frontier Foundation, Amateur Radio Relay League. Um, I think most people are familiar in the Linux sphere, at least familiar with those first three. The, the Amateur Radio Relay League may start, that's a ham radio group. The Institute for Justice. Uh, so what they are is kind of the big legal fist for a small business owner. The Institute for Justice is a nonprofit that more or less challenges bad laws and bad licensing regimes in court. For example, the eminent domain case where they tried to take the Kilo House, the Institute for Justice was the first organization to say, we're going to go to the mat for you in court. We're going to fight this all the way. In several areas, you have to have a license to braid hair, uh, even for people who do like traditional African hair braiding. 
the Institute for Justice sues everywhere that kind of license, that occupational licensing exists to remove it. Um, and they're proud of it, and they achieve results. That's that's one I'm really proud of being a member of. Uh, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. Uh, the Goldwater Institute, uh, Gun Owners of America, the Libertarian Party, and the Republican Liberty Caucus. Uh, not a lot of people have heard of that one. It's, it's, it's basically the Ron Paul wing of the Republican Party. What little there is left of one these days, in my personal opinion. So... Too long didn't read on the disclosure. Uh, if I'm going to be pigeonholed, well, by golly, I'm going to construct the pigeonhole myself because uh, I'm sure when I get to the meat of the politics, people are going to try to pigeonhole me. Uh, so people who I would consider to be politically influential, and I consider this to be a much better way of describing to you how I feel about things. Pendulette, um, I, mean, I really love Pendulette. Uh, Henry Hazlitt, uh, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, George Orwell, Thomas Sowell, who was born in Gastonia, North Carolina, might I add, uh, Sinclair Lewis, uh, Nian Ching, Jordan B. Peterson, Ayn Rand, Richard Dawkins, Ron Paul, Judge Andrew Napolitano, Sam Harris, Aldous Huxley. And while there is kind of a central conglomeration there around free market libertarians, like that's not at all all you're getting there. That's actually... There's a broader range there politically than you might think at first blush. And if anyone listening uh, is squirming uncomfortably right now, it might be because they're a Marxist because an awful lot of the people that I listed before are actually former Marxists who have vicious criticisms of the doctrine, particularly Nian Cheng, who authored a book called Life and Death in Shanghai. And if you want to see the real nastiness of the Communist Party in China beyond Tiananmen Square, read that book. But uh, you might not sleep quite as well at night if you do. I included an image. Uh, so if you're listening to this audio only, you're just going to have to see the image. I, you know, I, I could try to paint a picture for you, but this image is worth way more than a thousand words. So I, would, I wouldn't do it justice. Um, but if you do pull it up, if you're watching the slide deck, if you're seeing this online... We'll, we'll have the video available on YouTube. So if somebody's looking for that, you can look at this particular episode. The YouTube video will have all of the slide deck right in it. Yes. Um, so it's it's an image that I I would use created loosely. I, I more or less remixed it. I saw the meme and I was like, ooh, you're onto something there, but not quite. And I kind of did my own take on it, and I really liked it. Uh, and if you're seeing this image... The position of the heads left to right and the labels that apply to them is no accident. The ferociousness and the proximity of each of the heads of the hydra to the person is also no accident at all. And with that, now a word from Stephen Fry. In, in agreeing to uh, participate in this debate and stand on this side of the argument, I'm fully aware that many people who choose incorrectly, in my view, to, to see this issue in terms of left and right, devalued and exploded terms as I think they are, will believe that I am betraying myself and such causes and values that I have espoused over the years. I've been given huge grief already simply because I'm standing here next to Professor Peterson, which is the very reason that I am standing here in the first place. I'm standing next to someone with whom I have you know, uh, differences, shall we say, in terms of politics and all kinds of other things, um, precisely because I think all this has got to stop. This rage, resentment, hostility, hostility intolerance, above all this um, 
with us or against us, certainty. A grand canyon has opened up in our world. The fissure, the crack, grows wider every day. Neither on each side can hear a word that the other shrieks, and nor do they want to. While these armies and propagandists in the culture wars clash, down below in the enormous space between the two sides, the people of the world try to get on with their lives alternately baffled, bored, and betrayed by the horrible noises and explosions that echo all around. I think it's time for this toxic, binary, zero-sum madness to stop before we destroy ourselves. Um, I... I'd better nail my colours to the mast uh, before I get any further in this. It's only polite to give you a sense of where I come from. I, all my adult life I have been uh, what you might call a lefty, a soft lefty, a liberal of the most hand-wringing, milksop, milk-toast variety. Not a burning man-the-barricade socialist, not even really a progressive worth the name. I've been on marches, but I've never quite dared wave placards or banners. Um, <laughs> Am I a loathed member of that band, the, uh, an SJW, uh, uh, a social justice warrior? I don't think highly of social injustice, I have to say, but I character myself mostly as a social justice warrior. My intellectual heroes growing up were Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore, liberal thinkers, people like that, writers like E.M. Forster. I believed, and I think I still do believe, in the sanctity of human relations, of the primacy of the heart and friendship and love and common interest. These are more personal, interior beliefs than they are political exterior convictions, more a humanistic version uh, of a religious impulse, I suppose. I trust in humanity. I believe in humanity. I think I do, despite all that has happened in the 40 years of my adulthood. I am soft, and I can easily be swept away by harder hearts and harder intellects. I'm sometimes surprised to be described as an activist, but over time I have energetically involved myself with what you might call causes. I grew up knowing that I was gay. Well, in in fact, from the very first I knew I was gay. I remember when I was born looking up and saying, that's the last time I'm going out one of those. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish, so I have a natural obvious horror of racism. Uh, um, I, naturally, I want racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, bullying, bigotry, intolerance of all human kinds to end. That's surely a given amongst all of us. The question is how such a golden aim is to be achieved. My ultimate objection to political correctness is not that it combines so much of what I have spent a lifetime loathing and opposing, preachiness, with great respect, um, <laughs> piety, uh, self-righteousness, heresy hunting, denunciation, shaming, assertion without evidence, accusation, inquisition, censoring. Uh, that's not why I'm incurring the wrath of my fellow liberals by standing on this side of the house. Um, my real objection is that I don't think political correctness works. I want to achieve, I want to get to the golden hill, but I don't think that's the way to get there. Um, I believe... One of the greatest human failings is to prefer to be right than to be effective. Um, and, and political correctness 
is always obsessed with how right it is without thinking of how effective it, it might be. I, I wouldn't class myself as a classical libertarian, uh, but I do relish transgression, and I deeply and instinctively distrust conformity and orthodoxy. Uh, progress is not achieved by preachers and guardians of morality, but, to paraphrase Evgeny Zemyatin, by madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. I, uh, I may be wrong. I, I hope to learn this evening. I really do think I may be wrong, but uh, I am prepared to entertain the possibility that political correctness will bring us more tolerance uh, and, and a better world. Um, but I'm not sure, and I would like this quotation from my hero Bertrand Russell to hover over the evening. One of the painful things about our time is that those who feel certainty are stupid, and those with any imagination and understanding are filled with doubt and indecision. Let doubt prevail. Let's get to all the things you don't want to hear about politics. The Code of Conduct. Um, this is... It's been a thing for the last couple of years. It's been pushed pretty aggressively in the open source sphere and other areas totally unrelated to open source as well. Uh, but the code of conduct is, is kind of a series of guidelines as to what is and isn't acceptable behavior and an event and what the repercussions are for transgressing those rules, etc. Part of the way self-reorganized after it hit that bankruptcy wall from the the party debacle was it's actually and I'll, I'll get to this a little bit later it's it's not as easy as it might sound to be a 501c3 as a free software organization in fact the irs is deeply deeply distrustful of 501c3s that are free software uh that are free software filings not my words the words of cat allman and and i'll get to that in detail later but essentially as part of reorganizing, it became abundantly clear that since I was already self-employed, it was dramatically, radically cheaper, like orders of magnitude cheaper, for self to simply be a quote-unquote for-profit tucked under my existing LLC that I already do and already operate and already have to do books for, but deliberately operated in such a way where profit is not part of the equation. I like to say for profit, but deliberately bad at making profit. <laughs> because as it turns out, because of the way the IRS deals with 501c3s from free software filings, it's way cheaper to be for profit and deliberately bad at making profit than it is to be non profit and really, really good at not making profit. Government. <laughs> Um, so my first reaction, so basically that was my way of saying, I have some skin in the game here. Like if something goes horribly awry, that lands on me. So my first reaction wasn't, well, let me read this over. My first reaction was, I'm going to hand this to a lawyer. And so I did. The people pushing codes of conduct, they have several examples. And depending on who it is in their own personal view, you know, there's several out there floating around. Uh, I want to say one of the bigger ones that's pushed is the contributor covenant? I think I have that right, um, and that was—I think that was the one. Yeah, yeah, the contributor covenant. That was the one I took and had a lawyer review. His words to me were, "If I were a judge, 
I would ask you just who the hell you thought you were trying to rewrite the law for your little fiefdom and just where you obtained a wisdom for how things should be run around here greater than the collective electorate than the, the greater than the uh, collective wisdom of the electorate and the officials that represent them. I didn't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> um, his advice was to be an arbitrator and to resist the temptation to be a judge and a jury and executioner, because when you do that, you you have essentially entered yourself into the legal fray. He said, what you really want to be is a peace broker. You want to resolve the conflict without a determination of guilt either way, even if it seems painfully obvious who's guilty. You, you just want to achieve peace. Um, if you can't do that, uh, his recommendation for the safest legal course was to simply eject all parties involved from the event. And he said, I know as I say that, that that's a terrible thing because you know, statistically speaking, at least half the people you just ejected were totally innocent. That's a terrible thing to have to do. But it's also, legally speaking, from my point of view as a lawyer advising you as counsel, the wise thing to do. Uh, he also said, you know, you're running around running an event. How much of your mental capacity can you really bring to bear to slow things down and seriously consider everything unfolding? Not a bad point you got there. My response to the code of conduct and, and it being pushed upon me was to simply ignore it. <laughs> I, I, I ignored it, didn't put anything up there, but eventually the shouts become loud enough that you have to do something because people will just, it becomes something where they will, if you do not have one, you will be asked repeatedly about it. And eventually, the, the act of answering those questions becomes so tedious that you might as well have a policy, even if your policy is we don't have a policy. Because the, in the absence, people are just going to ask questions and insert their own fears into that vacuum. For not having, and I think our first official code of conduct uh, policy was kind of a pithy one-liner. It was kind of a, uh, I, I, I won't. I'll get it wrong. You can go. It's, I'm sure it's on archive.org somewhere. But it was more or less, don't be a butthead. If I want to paraphrase it, that was more or less our code of conduct. And if you need help learning what a butthead is, then if you think something might be in question <laughs> of, of uh, it might be in concern of being a butthead, probably just don't do that thing and you're probably pretty safe. Yeah. So, um, unbelievably, I was actually threatened in private at other events for this, for not having a code of conduct that some people deemed acceptable. And not from, you know, random people. Uh, the person, like, the very first person to threaten me has been a speaker itself, I think, every year. And I have actually, and because I accept talks blindly, they keep getting talks because I, I'm not holding that against them because I don't know who they are when I select the talks. So. Uh, if nothing else, you can't accuse me of bias in selecting speakers, given that I keep selecting a speaker who threatened me. <laughs> uh, there, there's the downside, by the way, of selecting blind. Ooh. Um, uh, but because of this, when I go to other events to promote self or to speak, I simply do not have private conversations with strangers anymore. Even people who I only somewhat know I will keep other people around me to be witnesses now. And it's terribly tragic that I even have to say that. And it's even more tragic that if you go looking around online, I am not the only one that does that anymore. And that's even more sad.
given that I got a nasty backlash simply for not having a code of conduct that a lawyer told me you would be a fool to have, I started like, why are people pushing this? What What's the real message here? And if you start looking around online, Googling for codes of conduct and I don't know, insert your own pejorative here, cons, downsides, alternative views, it's hard not to eventually stumble into a guy by the name of Paul M. Jones. He is apparently somewhat infamous as someone who is a a vociferous advocate against some codes of conduct. Um, if you want to read up about him, he's in the PHP fig, the Framework Interoperability Group. I think I got that right. And we've actually had Paul on the show and interviewed him about his views on the code of conduct and uh, part of his presentation and all that. And we'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Um, so if you want to read up on some of that nasty past that made him infamous, just, just go read the PHP fig. It's all it's all there. It's a mailing list. Um, but my personal take after having skimmed through it uh, was <laughs> infantile, petty, and a poo-flinging fest. That would be how I would describe a lot of the just childish battles that occurred over that. Um, so I, I, I got put into contact with him and to get his take. Um, and, you know, given how he has this reputation, you know, you might be expecting the worst, but not, not, not only was he, in fact, not Hitler, and I say that, only somewhat tongue-in-cheek, given the nastiness of our political discourse these days. Um, but I actually found him to be reasonable and measured and well-spoken. Um, and uh, that the next year when I was selecting talks, there was one on the darker side of the Code of Conduct. And blindly, I selected it. And it was Paul that submitted it. Uh, so he gave a talk at self on codes of conduct and some of the downsides of some of those codes of conduct. I Boy, if you thought it was political before simply by not having an acceptable code of conduct, the act of having someone speak out against the concept of a code of conduct in some cases caused enormous backlash. The fact that it was Paul M. Jones giving that talk ramped it up a couple notches. So, just for having him speak his personal opinion itself, there was a targeted smear campaign on social media directly going after Self's biggest sponsors, telling them to no longer support our event. And it worked. Like They've successfully chased off multiple sponsors. I know of at least two for sure because they contacted me disagreeing with the decision of their own superiors to no longer support Self. Uh, one of which came back to me with a demand, not not their own, but of their superiors, that for them to sponsor the next year, one-third of all speakers would have to be female. How can I possibly guarantee you one-third of anything, gender, color, nationality, religion, whatever shallow collectivist thing you're fixated on when I select the talks blindly based upon merit? I can't even tell you whether or not I can qualify for your demand until after I've selected talks because I don't even know who I'm selecting. In the words of the person who made those demands to me, 
This doesn't seem to do anything more than merely check a box. That was their own words to me when delivering these demands. And everyone immediately asked me in private after they hear this talk, who is it? What's the company? Could you tell me? I, I don't want to tell you because I don't, I don't want to attract the poo flinging the other direction at the company because it isn't necessarily the views of the company. It might just be one person in a position of power, as I like to say, a catbert in HR or in marketing who has purchase authority power. And they're using that, they're using those levers of power to achieve their own means. And to kind of prove this point of how counterproductive it would be to attack the company that made the demand, more than a dozen of, more than a dozen employees from that company that very year decided to come to self on their own dime as supporting attendees on their own dime and enjoy the event free, you know, enjoy the event as much as they could without their own company's backing. So the, the company formally wasn't there. All the employees were still there. Um, for me, what was insightful was the one time when the rubber uh, really met the road when it comes to codes of conduct. Um, and there are no winners in this story. There are only losers. Um, so I had a, a, the employee of a sponsor who was at the event. Um, this was, I guess, well, I'm not looking, it was at the Sheridan. So it's, it's more in more recent history of the event, but I can't name off the top of my head, which year, um, this person had diversity in their official job title and they approached me at self face to face to say that if our event did not have an acceptable code of conduct to their standards. And at the time we had already, we had put in our own pithy, don't be a butthead equivalent code of conduct. And he said, that is not acceptable to our standards. And if you do not have one that is acceptable to our standards, and he offered again, the contributor covenant, the one, the lawyer said, mm, don't do that, uh, that they would not be back as a sponsor. And that would be a permanent decision until we acquiesce to that demand. The very next day, one of their employees put a business card down the shirt of a female attendee on his way out the venue. I had an eyewitness report from another sponsor, and not just any random person, but a really smart one, uh, a person who is a rising FOSS celebrity who goes on major national shows to talk about FOSS. And I had an actual physical business card in my hand. So with the smoking gun of the business card and an eyewitness report, I went to go be the axe man that the job required of me at the time. I went and pulled in the, uh, the, the gentleman with diversity in his, his official title. I informed him of what happened, and I informed him that that person was banned from the event until further notice, and specifically by that I mean indefinitely. And what did the what was the first thing to spout out of his mouth in response? It wasn't how is she? How can we help? How can we resolve this? The first response was quote and I quote why did it have to be us? <laughs> so somebody is assaulted and this person who previously is so concerned about the safety and well being of these attendees and your lack of concern for their safety 
is more concerned about the PR ramifications than the actual event or the actual safety? Shocking. Somebody who cares to claim about others really only care, really only cares for themselves. Sounds like they would make a great politician. Sadly, um, yeah, that response says more than I probably ever could. Now I ended with a bit of a wry that didn't take a code of conduct, did it? <laughs> so you said you said this to the employee. I said that that was my last words as he left the room. I <laughs> I had him turn around and say that didn't take a code of conduct, did it? <laughs> fantastic, absolutely fantastic. He, like had no response to that, and I was absolutely thrilled to spike the football in his face like that because I felt he was duplicitous and the nature of his actions versus his proclaimed beliefs. I enjoyed spiking the football there immensely. Until mere, maybe not even an hour later, when I realized I just banned the wrong employee. The business card that was put down the female attendee's shirt was not the person who did it. It was a co-worker of that person. Still doesn't excuse his response, though. Uh, accurate, very accurate. Um, on top of that, this means that the eyewitness report from that very intelligent, very amazing person was wrong, and you know that they had no explanation for that. And you know, and as it turns out, this is something any judge or cop could tell you: eyewitness reports are notoriously unreliable and inaccurate. This is why. Uh, this is why, by the way, it's a good idea to put cameras on cops because even trained police officers have a hard time getting eyewitness reports correct. Sure. Insert del- <laughs> delete expletive with many, many exclamation points here. Uh, FSCK. Uh, yeah. Well, let's do a file system check. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think everybody gets that joke. Um. So that is one of the greatest mistakes I've ever made because I nearly destroyed an innocent person's career and the lawyer was as right as ever. I was too busy managing an event. I wanted the problem to go away. I didn't slow down and think skeptically every step of the way and try to be an arbitrator, not a judge. I got swept away in the moment. And I nearly ruined that man's career. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for the woman who had the card put down her shirt, coming back and saying, "I don't think that's him," uh, could, could could you show me photos? And then, but you know, by this time, corporate HR is involved from the company in question. Who? Yeah. Well, yeah, when corporate HR is involved, you know you've entered a new level of Hades. Um. And, well, thankfully, we eventually got it right, but I can't imagine the horror that that person must have lived in for a day or so while they were in limbo, being summarily lynched while being innocent. So, yeah, uh, points to the lawyer and no points to me for following his advice. I won't make the same mistake twice, though. Uh, so another thing that comes along with this weird political, politicalized code of conduct thing, and and you know, 
again, I, I despise labels because people remove nuance and insert groupthink when you apply a label. But the, the, in speaking as a generalization, because I think as a generalization, it does apply. The kind of person who would push these these the contributor covenant style code of conduct would also be a person who would tend to be more likely to self-describe themselves as, say, a social justice warrior or a progressive. So I'm not saying that agenda is right or wrong, but I am saying it is an agenda. The weird, the bizarreness is the dichotomy of response you get along these lines. So, for example, um, the Geek Feminism Wiki uh, started an article tracking female speakers in FOSS events and praising the Southeast Linux Fest for having so many. They even like um, one of the members of that wiki who was a speaker itself that year asked us what we did to have so many female speakers. They were quite shocked when we replied, nothing. We, oh, okay, almost nothing. Technically, we did invite slash voluntold Wendy Seltzer to come back and talk. Um, she's an amazing person. She works with EFF. She's on. She may still be on the board of directors for a tour at the time she was. And we, because she's not as thoroughly embedded in the Linux community as others, because she, for her, it's a legal thing. Like she's a legal mind, not a Linux mind. And that's where she's coming into the Linux space from, from, from the law side. And so she's not normally tapped into this community. So we reached out because she might not normally keep herself in this sort of community, but we want to hear what she has to say. Um, so that was the only thing we did. We solicited her specific talk. That was it. Now, this may have contributed in some part to other FOSS events in the immediacy, like in the, in the immediate year after that thing went up. Some other community-based events like went all out, like all-female keynotes, all-female talk days, all-female talk tracks, like started becoming a thing within some subsets of the FOSS community events. As though this, <laughs> I like to call them genitalia-based bragging rights. Um, and yes, <laughs> I, I deliberately say that to be demeaning uh, because uh, I just don't see the relevance of genitalia to content. Maybe that's just me. Um, it put more blatantly, itself, at least while I'm selecting speakers, genitalia is irrelevant, not part of the form to submit a talk, and if you do submit it, it's probably in a field I've truncated when I selected the talks anyway so I could select them blindly. Uh, more into the dichotomy stuff. Uh, I was asked by a prominent Google employee at Self how we were able to have so many black people at Self. Now, they said African-American, but... There's people in South Africa who who apply that label, but that label does not fit in the context you're expecting it to be. White's not a bad term. Black shouldn't be a black term either. They're black. It's, it's a simple adjective. So they wanted to know how I, quote, unquote, did it, having so many black people itself. And to me, this was a seg fault. I... It, the perspective was so foreign, it was a thought I had literally never even entertained, not even anything tangentially related had entertained. For me, the thought was promote the event as best I can, as wide as I can, and whoever shows up, shows up. 
So I looked around, and if anything, I thought the number of black people there would be less than I would expect from a random sampling for the area. But whatever. Um, I guess I'll try to help you. Um, So I asked them, well, where are you holding the events that you're holding where you're not getting this many black people to attend? And the response was, Portland. <laughs> what, was your, what was your response? Um, have you considered holding your event somewhere where black people actually live? <laughs> That's fantastic. So I, I went ahead and pulled up the most recent census data. Um, uh, black people are approximately 35% of metropolitan Charlotte, North Carolina, they are 6% of metropolitan Portland, Oregon. Diversity indeed. Um, I believe Chris Rock had a joke to this effect about Minnesota, Prince, and Kirby Puckett. And I'm going to have a moment of silence here for my broken heart from Kirby Puckett beating the Braves in Game 7 of the World Series. Um, and, I, and if you're looking at the slide deck, I've included a link to the direct current comparison between those two metropolitan areas on ethnicity breakdown. Here's my uh, real-life code of conduct conclusions. The rules aren't nearly as important as the people in charge of enforcing them. Bad behavior is already illegal. Serious transgressions should be met with legal responses. Do the people in charge have the wisdom to avoid being judge and or jury and or executioner? Will you keep your wits about you under intense pressure even when as an organizer you're on day two, day two and a half, maybe day three with little to no sleep? Will you pursue what is right and fair as an event organizer and not what is merely expeditious to make the problem go away? That was a lot of negative (laughs) that I just unloaded (laughs) over the previous, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Um, So I don't want you to get the wrong conclusion. Let's put this in its proper statistical context. Based upon my own data itself, you're approximately five to eight times more likely not to make it to self because of a serious car wreck or a serious plane issue, you know, plane maintenance, misconnection, whatever, then you are to be harassed. And like, and the car one is, you know, kind of unreal. We have had at least one or two speakers or staff members either not make it or make it late because of an auto wreck every year. And this past year, um, one of our core team actually had their car totaled on the way to self with a carload of self equipment. And that, by the way, was part of what kind of set everything organizationally back because that was a carload of equipment we needed. And that set us back almost half to two thirds of a day. You'd be surprised. Like, be, if you're worried about your safety itself, for heaven's sake, drive slow and look around when you're driving. <laughs> Because that's the thing that's going to get you. Okay, and now for something completely different. And I would like to say that I hope this is the first, last, and only time that I have to be political in the context of this event and organizing it. 
And I, but I do hope that other event organizers found that valuable because that is the kind of information I tried to pull out of other organizers to find out what had happened to them, how they had dealt with it, what policies worked, what policies different, uh, what policies didn't. And if you try to broach that subject with other event organizers, they just, they clam right up. Like you're not, it's, it's information that does not flow as freely as you might expect from a free software group. Um, and I, what I like to say is, you know, people go, well, well, that's terrible. She had a card, you know, the, the particular woman who had the business card shoved down her shirt. Well, any sufficiently large sample size eventually yields highly implausible results. It's, you know, it, it's the whole sampling problem. It's kind of like how it only takes uh, something like 15 to 20 people in a room before two people have the same birthday. It's weird, but you, you get a large sample size, eventually weird things happen. Getting traditional media coverage is not impossible, but it is incredibly difficult. People in traditional media aren't going to get it. They're not going to know what it is. You're going to have to explain yourself before you even talk about what the event is, and it's, it's an uphill battle all the way. I was able to get coverage in a newspaper for self once, because I knew the person who wrote the story. And even then, I wouldn't exactly call it a glowing piece of journalism. Because I knew it, I because I knew them, when I talked to them for the interview, I talked to them informally. So their first line in the article was, you know, I forget it was, they asked who all was involved with the event. And my off-the-cuff response was three uh, something along the lines of four local guys, a chick, um... Another dude, I think, like that quote was planted right in the article immediately. (laughs) So, uh, if you do get some, be prepared to be underwhelmed when you do. Uh, I would consider, from a time perspective as an event organizer, at least on the community side of things, you know, this may be different if you're insert big corporation here, but it's probably not worth pursuing traditional media whatsoever. And frankly, our target audience is not exactly a traditional media audience anyway i don't think you're going to find many people at a linux fest who subscribe to a newspaper they probably read some online but i doubt they get a dead tree in their driveway every morning here's another one don't assume that you will get a quid pro quo on sponsorship contacts with other events Uh, i gave a sponsorship contact to another community event and they were able to convert that contact into sponsorship dollars for their event very quickly that year. Uh, when I saw that and then asked for one of their contacts, I was left out in the cold. So because of that, now I don't give away contacts to anyone for any reason now. Um, and that's a shame because the event that did that was one that we really looked up to. Um, it hurts more when it comes from the from events you aspire to be like. Um, that I never in a million years would I have guessed that, you know, pettiness like that would exist, but it does. Event insurance is very cheap. Don't cut the corner. You know, a million dollar general policy, give or take four or 500 bucks. It's worth every stinking penny because if something goes horribly wrong, their lawyers take over, you walk away and go back to your day job. Um, on the other hand, event insurance for alcohol-related events is incredibly expensive. Um, 
I think just a $100,000 alcohol policy is more than a million-dollar general policy. Uh, and when you do an alcohol policy, by the way, it's not just the coverage. They're, they have a laundry list of questions. They're going to want to know the square footage. They're going to want to know how access is controlled, if it's publicly available, what kinds of alcohol is served, if there's an occupation limit. Like there, The questions flow many, many when you go to get event insurance where there's alcohol being served at the event. So if you're going to do a party where there's alcohol, just know that there's that hidden cost. And because it's alcohol and, you, you again, sufficiently large sample sizes yield highly implausible results, you are going to want that insurance policy. And just, just be prepared. It's going to cost a lot more than you probably expect it to. Um, another issue that I touched on a little bit earlier, uh, Cat Allman's talk uh, at Ohio Linux Fest regarding 501c3s and open source. Um, basically, the IRS isn't going to like you. Uh, prepare to be audited. Prepare to be rejected possibly multiple times on both counts. Each time it's expensive. Each time it's time-consuming. Uh, when I talked to an accountant, he said two to three grand for your initial filing. I expect them to probably turn that down since you're a free software group. It's going to cost me at least another four figures to do the paperwork for you again. Every year I maintain the books, another one to two to $3,000, just depending on how much work I have to do, whether or not I'm audited, et cetera, et cetera. When you're a free to attend to event, these thousand dollars add up in a hurry. <laughs> uh, and if you try to piggyback off other organizations uh, who already have a 501c3, just be aware you got to play by their rules, not yours, especially when money is involved. You got to use their accounting system, their way. They're going to be in charge on all money processing. So don't assume that you can dodge this problem by tucking yourself under someone else's 501c3s because they have their own regime that's going to come with that. Some more highly implausible outcomes that are yielded from large sample sizes. Things you would never imagine might happen as an event organizer. Geek groupies. I would have called you a liar to your face until I saw it myself. I, I have seen female executives from Bank of America show up to the Southeast Linux Fest explicitly to headhunt geek men. <laughs> Uh, you just you just doubled the self attendance. You know that, right? <laughs> There's going to be a whole bunch of single geeks that are showing up next year. I well, I I hope you have number one a high tolerance of alcohol, and number two that you are. Yeah, well, I'll put it to you this way: the number of groupies is vastly vastly inferior to the number of male attendees. So if you're coming thinking that that's going to be what you're going to get, you're going to be like, just just no. If you're coming to self, it better be for Linux or to have a good time, and I don't mean a good time in that particular context. Um, yeah, it may happen, but again, I would have said totally impossible, and if you're listening and saying manure, I am totally with you. And had I not seen it for myself, I would still say the same thing myself. Bad behavior, I think we've covered this already, but more perniciously, which we've also covered already, bad behavior masquerading as good behavior. Like, that's, mm, that's an extra level of nastiness there. 
um, travel chaos, which we've also covered, be by air or land. Um, something else to consider as an event organizer. Sponsors have angles and agendas. S- you know, their sponsors might have demands you might not like, and we're going to touch on that a little bit later of in the in the very near future here. Um, don't use a calendar as a cushion because your event is you know one week one week into year. You always feel like it's distant, but if you try to use calendar as cushion what you'll end up doing is have to, having to do two years worth of conference work in roughly a half year's worth of time because you're going to have to rush to finish that year's event and then rush to boot up the next year's event in time to get it back on the proper time frame don't do it it's it's a way bigger hole that you're that you are digging than you think where is self today um well, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a bottleneck. Uh, anyone who sees me running around feverishly itself probably knows this. Um, and this is largely due to me very quietly shielding others from these political crap storms, for lack of a better word. And I know all too well from the, or, from the exodus we had after the party debacle, but from other events that have come and gone, Atlanta Linux Showcase, Indiana Linux Fest, Ontario Linux Fest, Kansas Linux Fest, Northeast Linux Fest, Fawcett, uh, yeah, oh, no, wait, so Fawcett, Fawcett Con in Orlando, come and, and, and those are people who come to self every year too, like, you know, I, I, I miss Fawcett Con. Um, there's a lot of really good community events that have come and gone, um, and it's my observation that when the event changes from being a fun hobby and a passion to being a burdensome job, people burn out and attrition out very, very rapidly. And so that was kind of my way of saying, oh, I've had enough attrition. Can we just, can we keep what we've got now? I'll, I'll kind of beat this back quietly behind the scenes, but let's not have any more attrition, please. Um, so, uh, this was made a little bit worse by the fact that, um, when all this pressure on against sponsors for the code of conduct occurred, I was at the front half of a two year contract. So if they successfully kneecapped enough sponsors, I would be on the hook for two years worth of stuff at the hotel. And I mean, I would be on the hook because it's my company signing that contract since it's tucked under my LLC. So I was very acutely aware of you know ha, you know theoretically had i had to liquidate two years at, at the sheraton that would be a liquidation out cost of, of north of fifty thousand dollars i would i would be out so we're talking real real coin here uh, and i was acutely aware of that so uh, what i'm doing is uh, after this year um, i'm approaching self's core team um, and I'm going to start formally reintegrating them within the structure of self, uh, as long as they are willing to accept their own personal political exposure through association with the event. And it's tragic that I even have to say that, frankly. Um, and I will, you know, start delegating and pushing work back down to the core team that's always been there. 
Now the response I've received has been overwhelmingly positive. So like I had like of the people who've been working around and helping self, not a single one has said, no, I'm not willing to, to expose myself to this political. St-. If anything, it has rallied people around the cause more in my opinion. Uh, so, uh, more on where self is today. Um, so while I had all that negativity that I dumped on you earlier, um, because I wanted other organizers to hear that untold story, um, there's actually a lot of hidden positives too. So, um, as a perfectionist, I have no shortage of criticisms for self or my management of self, but I do have some things, even as a perfectionist, where I think we're pretty dang good. We get people hired at self, and we get them hired to use the software and the tools they love anyway. Uh, So remember the woman who had the business card stuffed down her shirt? Well, that year she was hired by a different sponsor. And despite the fact that as part of that hiring, she had to move a thousand miles further away from self, she has been back every single year. Um, and that is by, by far not the only employment success story. An actual sponsor who unfortunately I cannot name specifically due to their own corporate policy told me that at the Southeast Linux Fest, they had more qualified applicants and more hired applicants and more retained hired applicants than they had at the Southern California Linux Expo. That was mind-boggling to me. Self is roughly 500 to 750 people. Scale will clear that in the first two hours of registration opening. Scale is somewhere between three and 5,000, depending on the year. The fact that we, we out-competed that talent pool is absolutely mind-boggling to me i would have bet a large amount of money that that would simply not be possible and i don't say that at all to be derogatory to scale if anything i look up to them like all in fact one of the things i love to do is take people who help with self and if i if i have the luxury and the budget to go i like to go to scale to network with sponsors to go see some talks from people i might not otherwise hear uh to make sure that sponsors who think that Silicon Valley is, in fact, all of planet Earth know that there is something outside of the state of California that they might consider looking at. And I take other people who help out with self so they can see, because self itself is, if you've never been to a community event, may look organizationally impressive. If you go to scale, it's on another planet. They roll out phase three power to each of their vendors. People like Aberdeen can show up with a full rack and power it on at the booth and start flying, flinging around petabytes of data. It's, it's bananas, the, the level of organizational oomph that scale has. And somehow we got more people hired than them. Like that's, I, I'm at a loss for words of how that's even possible. So we are really, really good at getting people hired. Um. So now that we've covered some positives that don't really get too much press, uh, let's look into the future. To eliminate the chance for any further political meddling on the purse strings, Self has a self-imposed deadline of August 31st to raise the $10,000 necessary 
minimum to have the event at the at a hotel, specifically, typically the Sheraton Charlotte Airport. So that's that's like bare bones. Yes, that's a bare bones, absolute minimum. Like we're going to cut it back, but this is enough to make it happen. We will inform the sponsors as we seek this money openly about this political situation. And it will all be there in the open for everyone to marinate in. And when you say this political situation, you're, you're just talking about the code of conduct. The code of conduct and the fact that simply and, and the fact that some people will consider that you do not agree with them politically to be a transgression. Right. And so you're saying everybody is welcome, regardless of their political beliefs, regardless of what they believe. You just have to get along with other people and treat other people with respect. That is far, yes, that is a much more erudite way of saying it. You know, uh, well, like I said, the person who threatened me has been speaking itself almost every year since. So, you know, right. uh, if you want to talk about tolerance, that's pretty high on the tolerance side. Right. So don't be a butthead, I guess, is the exact <laughs> words you used. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, now other event organizers who've done events might hear $10,000 and go, how are you able to hold an event in a hotel for only $10,000? Um, that's largely because any leftover funds I have dumped into buying equipment so that we don't have to keep renting it because I have watched as our main vendor for renting good quality AV equipment has kind of wilted away as, you know, much cheaper manufacturing from overseas comes in and, you know, the cost of shipping equipment around starts, you know, when China can come in and offer a product that is only 120% the cost of renting for one weekend, boy, that, that's kind of, it's over for you as a rental company when that happens. And that's pretty much happened. Uh, the rental company that, used to, that we used to get a, literally a UPS truck full of equipment shipped uh, from more or less only does high-end DLS, DSLR rentals now. They, they, they're out of the game entirely. So it's a really good thing. I've been using all the extra money to buy equipment. Um, but now that we own all this equipment, the costs go down. I don't have to keep outlaying money to rent stuff. So it's essentially, it's only that cheap because there's a crude capital there. Uh, so, by the way, I am pleased to say that Self has already raised that $10,000 entirely through private solicitation. I didn't even need to publish the prospectus on the website. I just went around and asked within Self's immediate sponsor network, and we've already raised the $10,000. So, it's going to happen. But if in some future year Self was unable to raise that minimum threshold of money, we would pull the plug on a hotel and instead move to a college campus, just like we were in year one. And we have no shortage of collegiate support. I think this past year we had three different student groups from UNC Charlotte. UNC Charlotte has an enormous enrollment. I want to say it's well north of 20,000, 30,000. So they have some facilities. So worst case scenario, we can go set up shop at UNC Charlotte. Uh, but, we're not going to have to get. We're not going to have to cross that bridge because we've already raised the minimum. Some more thoughts for the future. Um, the Sheraton that we're at right now is a good home, but it certainly isn't covering the southeast as well as we could, or as I envisioned it being covered when I first took the reins. To use a sports analogy, I had always imagined the Southeast Olympics Fest being like the ACC basketball tournament. It's in Greensboro most of the time, but you know maybe every every third year, every fourth year, let's go to Atlanta, let's go to D.C., let's go to Charlotte. 
I wanted something similar for self. Let's be in Charlotte most years, but every three, four years, let's go to Birmingham. Let's go to Atlanta. Let's go to Raleigh. Let's go to Asheville. Let's go to other places so people who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend can get a taste. Now, to do that, you have to have you know enough momentum that the act of leaving is not going to – essentially, by being in the same spot, you're able to build up momentum year over year. You don't want to break that momentum unless you feel like the base is already big enough that it's not a big deal. And I want the event to be bigger before I move the big event elsewhere. But I also want the event to be not just in Charlotte. Since self-owns most or all of the equipment necessary to pull off the event, wouldn't it be a shame to just leave all that sitting there collecting dust for 360 days of the year? So why don't we take this show on the road? So let's do that. If you want self to do a one day, like a Saturday, one day weekend event in your neck of the woods, contact us. I'm especially interested in having an event like this in Raleigh, Winston-Salem, Asheville, Knoxville, Greenville, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, Atlanta, Birmingham, Memphis, Mobile, New Orleans, and Orlando just to name a few. If you're in these areas and you want self to come to you, contact us. Particularly if you are a student group willing to sponsor space at a college or if you're a sponsor willing to acquire space for us, move directly to the front of the line. You have my full and immediate attention. So for those who complain that self it would be nice for self to be somewhere other than Charlotte, I agree. Now, put your money where your mouth is. I'm willing to come, but you got to help me out. So if you're interested, contact me. Info at southeastlinuxfest.org. Okay. Um, a little bit more hidden positivity. Uh, the feedback that I got on uh, – so I did a survey for our 10th anniversary – totally anonymous and i left every single question as optional you could pull up that survey answer the first question hit submit no problem it's the most low pressure survey of all time because <laughs> i i always hate it when i have to do a survey and you click you know you click the button at the bottom and then you go to the next page and that's actually page two of 12 <laughs> nobody likes that um so um the feedback that I got was pretty awesome. Uh, everything from people landing the job they wanted in the field they wanted to people peering over Chris DeBona's shoulder as he showed off Google Wave before it debuted publicly uh, to sitting down and having a conversation with someone only to discover afterwards that they were talking to Richard Hip or some other Foss celebrity. Uh, but the best one was a, uh, a single mother who was trying to provide for her son while working two jobs. Why did she come to self? Because it was free. Remember, I was the one, the only one, who wanted to charge. Like I said, oh, how wrong I was. She left a very long, very heartfelt, and I would imagine tearful response, thanking the speakers, the sponsors, the volunteers, the staff, and even just attendees for providing her son with knowledge, a bit of guidance, and a tool set to pursue his passions in technology for free. 
you're not going to get feedback like that from an expensive pay-for event like OSCON or Lisa. And I don't say that to demoralize either. You're just not going to get that kind of feedback. Well said. Well said. Um, so above all else is organizer, uh, be humble. So I just told you about how wrong I was about um, in terms of, well, first off, that the one event with the business card down the shirt, like I, I banned the wrong person at first. And I was wrong in terms of the event not having a free-to-attend option. Wrong, wrong, wrong. So be humble. Um, uh, one year, a person on a shoestring budget came to self to cover the event, uh, for as in cover it news news style, independent news. Uh, I could best describe their experience as rolling snake eyes over and over and over. They stayed at uh, a red roof uh, near um, uh, the Sheraton Charlotte Airport. Uh, pro tip, don't stay at that red roof. Avoid it. J- just no. Do not stay at that red roof. While they were there at that uh, alternative hotel, their car was vandalized, and by that I mean windows shattered um, and other defacement to their vehicle. I think the most accurate way to describe the conditions of the hotel was that this person was not the only thing alive in their hotel room. I'll let you surmise what else was alive, but let's just say, ew. Typically itself, I'm not very easy to reach because I'm running around, you know, putting out whatever fire is going on, checking up on things. They went through the gauntlet to come find me. And what they asked me for was a piece of clear plastic to cover their shattered car window. And the look on their face when asking me transcended all language barriers. Uh, If you've heard the expression mountain pride, it's watching mountain pride get pushed to the breaking point. And uh, surrounded by thousands of dollars in electronics and brilliant people, and I even rummaged through the hotel supplies a $2 piece of plastic to cover their car window. So if you think being organizer is the position of ultimate power, you would be surprised how powerless you can be. Or, as I've already detailed, how wrong you can be. But as long as you are willing to learn from your mistakes, that's the important thing. Uh, we have a reintegrated core. We, we're starting to reintegrate the core team. That's already underway. From here forward, let me make explicit a policy that was formerly implicit. The Southeast Linux Fest, with a few notable possible exceptions, will always be the second weekend in June. And because the second weekend in June is a lower number than you might be expecting, because frequently the one will start on a Saturday or a Sunday and not the Friday... Pay close attention to the dates. What we try to do is be between Memorial Day and Father's Day. So we're kind of in that little gap there, and that's where we try to be. Now, there's some conditions that can make that move. The The one year where we weren't the second weekend in June, it was because Red Hat Summit conflicted. And because we're so close to Raleigh and we have such a huge following between Red Hat and Fedora, we're not going to go and conflict with Red Hat Summit. That's it's 
it's crazy for us to do that. If Red Hat Summit is the second weekend in June, we're running away from that weekend as quickly as possible. Another caveat is if something unforeseen happens in terms of logistics at the hotel to push us, which may be the case for 2019. 2019 may end up being the third weekend. We'll see. But in general, it's going to be the second weekend almost every year if I can help. We would love to give other places in the southeast a shine, as I mentioned earlier. Um, We are going to be free of political hindrance and free of what I like to call genitalia-based agendas. Um, In the past, I've kind of referred to myself cheekily as the lead masochist, uh, in part, (laughs) and it's weird. Uh, uh, People who are in charge of FOSS projects or FOSS events, there's a subset of them who see that title and immediately... (laughs) For all the right reasons. Um... Uh, I'm going to get rid of that title now because I hope in airing this I have removed the masochism from the equation and let's go to just being benevolent dictator. If it's good enough for Pat Volkerding and Slackware, it's good enough for self. Uh, and more on that dictator bit in a moment. Uh, on the on the final link that I'm going to see, you'll notice dictator is very deliberately used there. I did the remote attendee option as kind of a lark, not expecting much. It was way more successful than I could have possibly imagined. So going forward, remote attendee will be taken much more seriously. But it's not going to be free as in beer. There's going to be some minimal cost if you want to view the self-talks live but not in person. And I'm doing this not to get your money because I'm only charging five bucks. Trust me, you're not making an impact with five bucks. The act of attending is, in fact, in and of itself, a contribution to the event. The hallway track is very, very valuable. You can't get that in virtual space. You can only get that by being there in person. The way to view the hallway track is literally a hallway with a ton of doors, like that hallway in the movie Beetlejuice, where it's just doors as far as you can see into the horizon. And every single attendee you add to the event is another door. You don't know what's behind it, but occasionally it might be your dream job. You just never know. The hallway track is amazing, and it is the most overlooked and ignored part of the event. But Amongst Self's biggest fans, they're there almost exclusively for the hallway track. There's a, there's a weird dichotomy there. New attendees want talks. Repeat attendees want the hallway. Absolutely. That is 100% why I come to Self. And I have said that over and over again, that the true value in Self is networking and the valuable human connections that you make. Yeah. Um, uh, we also want to use Lugs as kind of a farm league. Uh, to bring up and promote homegrown FOSS talent and push people to reconnect with their own local lug. Self, because it's a community event and relaxed and informal, it makes a really great bridge between speaking to a dozen people you already know at your lug and speaking to a thousand people you don't know at a big conference. It's big enough to be way bigger than your lug, but small enough to be way smaller than, say, OSCON. 
it's there's not a lot of conferences in there that can fill that that little gap, but we're pretty good at it. And the fact that it's a community event and it's informal, you're gonna be they're gonna cut you way more slack as a speaker than you would get at a professional event where people are paying thousands of dollars to attend. So if you if you want to give a shot at speaking and you're nervous, a first time speaker, self is the perfect event for that kind of thing. And we're going to keep taking, as I like to say, flyers from attendees in the future. A lot of the things that have become kind of really appreciated within the conference have not been my ideas. They've been ideas that other attendees have brought to me and said, can we do this? Um, And typically my response is, is this Linux or FOSS related? All right, I'll give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And even if it's not related, if if it's tangential and close enough, eh, I'll probably give it a shot. So the craft beer bottle share, that started from a public school teacher in Alabama who just happens to love Linux. He's like, uh, we all seem to also love craft beer. Can we just all bring some from where we came from and swap? And I gave him a tiny room, and that tiny room was a swarming sea of humanity. <laughs> and then the craft beer bottle share simply became part of the party and, in fact, is the main part of the party now. Uh, the dev random track started when, uh, one of the Fedora people said, Hey, I'm in the historical society for the battle of Jutland. This is some huge anniversary for the battle of Jutland, the largest battleship only naval warfare event. And I want to talk about how they used hardware computers to calculate shooting solutions on battleships. And his talk was packed. (laughs) And that was the birth of the Dev Random Track. So we have a track on Saturday that is nothing but non-FOSS content that's still kind of geeky and somewhat related, etc., etc. The Fiber Track, the LAN Party. So if you have an idea like that, you know, come talk to us. Send us an email. You know, even if we don't do it, I'd still like to hear it. Some other changes uh, are the event is going to be open source, and we mean it. Uh, Going forward, we're going to issue an annual report of finances at each event. All sponsor contracts will be published at each event as well. And if a sponsor has a stipulation such as, you must accept this talk as part of sponsorship. You must have this percentage of all speakers be female. You must have that or the other. I will demand that these requests go into the contract and be published at the event. If you're not willing to say it in front of everyone, why are you asking me for it? Um, now, some companies have as a just as a matter of standard company policy, NDAs for any contract, including little old sponsorship for self. So as part of that, I have added an NDA canary to the self website. It lists the companies that have from day one had an NDA policy when they have interfaced with self. Now, because of the, because of the specific company that's listed, I know there's going to be some straw men that are quickly being assembled right now. So um, the way I harvested those at the event was I had a brief hypothetical discussion in the audience was Dave Stokes, who is the community manager for MySQL, which is owned by Oracle. Dave sponsors the event 
and all he requests is that there be at least some focus, at least somewhere on the schedule on some amount of database content. And we call that zero to DBA. We don't even call it MySQL camp. We call it zero to DBA. And I asked, um, I asked him, so Dave, have you ever asked me to place content in that track that I do about databases? And he said, no. I asked him if he ever complained about me placing competitors to Oracle in the track. And he said, no. But he did request tasty beer at the party <laughs> or something along those lines. Um, and, and then I mean, so hypothetically speaking, if hypothetically you're worried about anything under the table going on with hypothetical sponsors which have NDAs, you're barking up the wrong tree. And I would like to add to that, as someone who has been to tons of other conferences networking for self and doing sponsor and speaker outreach, I have seen Dave catch an enormous amount of crap at his MySQL booth simply for the crime of being an Oracle employee, as though he himself was the Grim Reaper harvesting Sun Microsystems. Nothing could be further from the truth or more counterproductive. If you are a genuine open source advocate, what you should be asking Dave if you see him in an event is what can I do to get more of you hired at Oracle? Because if you really believe in open source, what you want is a lot more Dave Stokes at Oracle. At, uh, at some regular tech conference, uh, at some level, regular tech conference attendees know of these kind of conflicts of interest with sponsor dollars and sponsors attaching demands onto them. And, and so I think most attendees at, at an open source community event tend to be skeptical of sponsors just as a standard response, in my opinion. Um, I hope that this transparency will allow people to sort of banish that cynicism from the equation and allow for sponsors and attendees to forge more meaningful relationships. Sure, they're sponsoring because they want you to use their product or they want you to buy their product or they want you to buy the support contract or they want you to get more familiar with their tool set so you'll eventually get into other of their products or whatever. Obviously, there's an angle there. But at least itself, you'll know that that's all that's going on. No talks are being paid for, etc., etc. Um, as an organizer, um, you, you expect at least you need to hear this is a good one for event organizers you need to expect at least a few sponsors over the lifetime of your event to be unapologetically seeking to gobble up all of your attendee data i have had more than a half dozen sponsors ask me after self and even a few ask me at self for the full attendee roster as in will you email me more or less your registration database output I didn't exactly tell them to file system check in a different location, but I told them very definitively that they would be getting no data. And this is the reason why we put the QR codes on badges, so that if you wish to transact your personal information with them to talk later, that's a voluntary two-way transaction. You have to hold up their badge to their camera. There's no shenanigans going on. Voluntary transaction. Um, and in fact, if anything, self kind of goes overboard in the other direction, uh, registration has been 
for a couple of years, registration was fraught with snafus, weird glitches in registration. This is because what I had typically done in the past is, as soon as self is over, I, keenly aware of WordPress zero-day exploits, simply go in and truncate all the tables. If there's personally identifiable information, I simply nuke it. I immediately get rid of it. I'm not interested in the data. I don't want to save it. I don't want to keep it around. And I dang sure don't want to email hundreds of people to tell them I just lost their personal data. No, 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 no. I'd rather just delete it all. The problem with that is I'm not nearly as good at simulating bizarre registrations as actual humans are. (laughs) So my idea of chaos simulation and registration is nowhere near as good as several hundred Linux geeks. So this time what I have done is I have snapshotted registration from 2018 and I have moved that to an air-gapped sandbox so that now registration can be played with with real data but from the safety of knowing none of this is going to be exploitable. Um, and like I get salty when people assume the other way. I had a person on Twitter rather bitterly ask how much I had gotten for selling their information to a sponsor and how they could have possibly gotten that information because they had used one of those one-off unique emails, you know, a, a Gmail with a plus alias at the end, basically, to uniquely identify their registration as that unique email for that one year. So they knew exactly where that email source came from. Turns out they had entered a drawing for an SSD at a sponsor's booth and as part of that held up their badge to be scanned. So, yeah, uh, I uh, I was kind of salty with them on Twitter, which led ultimately to them apologizing to the sponsor. Now, if you were that person, I was probably a little too harsh with you, but, you know, yeah, two wrongs don't make a right. You weren't right either, but I wasn't. Yeah, I could have handled that a little better. But, yeah, that's why I get a little salty when when people assume that I'm selling their data up the river. If anything, I go overboard the other direction. And if you're an event organizer, you need to think early and often about what you're doing to preserve the integrity of your data and keep it out of the hands of people who want it for bad reasons. So the first 10 years of self have been quite a journey. Uh, I've met hundreds of amazing people I wouldn't have otherwise. I've spoken at events I likely wouldn't have otherwise, all the way up to LinuxCon North America. And by the way, having been there and spoken there, it's actually people, people put a pedestal there that doesn't exist. I would take random local homegrown talent toe-to-toe with more than half of the speakers at LinuxCon North America any day. The gap is not nearly as wide as you might imagine it. To and I would take the networking itself over Linux or over any of the networking that happens at LinuxCon every day. My words, not yours. Uh, they have a big checkbook there. <laughs> like, they have a big. They check- don't roll it out, but they, they have pay a for big it. checkbook. But you know what? <laughs> there is a small community of us Linux users that call them slam clickers, and they got that that term not not just LinuxCon, but some of the bigger you know commercial conferences. Because when you go out and you get done with the conference and you you go to sit down, you're like, do you want to get a slam click? And that's the sound of the hotel door closing and the bolt locking, and that's they're done for the night. Because there is no social interaction. And that's frustrating for some of us that go primarily for that. Yeah. And, and all of those positives I just listed are things that I can directly measure because they apply to me. What's, what's way cooler is impossible 
or very difficult to measure, and that is those positive effects on others. You know, what's the knock-on effect of someone who gets their dream job and an amazing salary working on the software they love? Like, what is the difference that has been made in that person's life five years later? Like, those are the real amazing things. Um, so I look forward to the uh, the next 10 being even better. Um, and I have provided a link to hopefully make uh, the Southeast Linux Fest live in your mind with the same kind of big idea of vibrancy that it does in mine. And we'll have a link to all of this stuff, everything that Jeremy's referenced in the show notes. You can head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll have a link there for you. So don't let the dirty laundry that I have aired for the benefit of event organizers and and transparency, um, and hopefully I've cleaned up that dirty laundry as I've aired it, Uh, don't let it give you the wrong impression. Uh, I want other organizers to know uh, the not-talked-about things, too, so that they can see it coming, so that they're not surprises to them. That's outstanding, and I'm I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be a part of that, Jeremy. I want to be the first person to say publicly thank you very much for what you've had to put up with and what you've had to endure, the personal sacrifices that you have made to make Southeast Linux Fest what it is. I, you know, as a person, and, and my audience knows this about me, is as a person who really values desktop Linux, I look for other people that are willing to put the betterment of Linux and and the priority of using Linux on the desktop first before everything else, before profits, you know, before popularity. And you have, I've watched you do that time and time and time again in every discussion I've ever had with you about, can we do this or can we shift this or can we shape this? You you always meet those kinds of discussions with, is it going to better Linux? Is it going to better the Linux community? And can we use desktop Linux to do those things? So I want to be the first person to thank you and for being willing to spend your time to go on the show to talk about all of this. And uh, I hope you'll come on the, back on the show real soon. Oh, absolutely. And uh, for for those who have attended Self and are listening, you might have heard a few times briefly in that talk where Fred, a.k.a. the second most popular mascot of Self after Alan Hicks, was snoring so i apologize he was on my feet snoring there a couple times the fred track will be in in popularity in 2019 (laughs) indeed perfect thanks so much for your time jeremy we really appreciate having you we'll get you back on the program real soon excellent great to be here hey guys did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast that's right to subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles referenced in this episode. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Better producer Sarah R. Kalskirner. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you. 24-7 at asknoahshow.com.